This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay, thank you again, Flavio. Um, I guess I can say it now for something completely different. Um, in my uh, previous life, of course, I uh, would do transplant procedures, and that was... Uh, great life. I still do that, of course. Um, But in my new role, I've gotten to uh, learn uh, a lot about how our program works and how it functions and what it takes to get a patient from that initial evaluation to the point where I'm used to seeing them, which is in the operating room. And so what I'd like to do in the next few minutes is talk a little bit about the dynamics of our wait list and how we can better get our patients through this complex process to to uh, get them into the operating room. So here we are moving this mountain, and fortunately it's not one person, it's not me alone. We have a wonderful team that, uh, as I showed you earlier, is there to really help help us get patients through the system. But it is a big mountain, and the mountain is not only the patients, as I mentioned earlier, 5,000 of them that are uh, hoping to one day reach the finish line of an organ transplant, and of course this is the largest list in the country, but it's also a mountain of information and tests and and results from tests that we need to uh, coordinate and put into a package so we better understand what the risks are for any given patient moving forward with transplant. So I'm going to make a few assumptions as I go through this talk. Um, First off, I hope everyone believes that for a suitable patient, transplant is the best option. It's going to improve their life expectancy. It's going to improve their quality of life. And we all, of course, need to involve our patients in decision-making, so education along all the phases of care is a very important ongoing process. And it shouldn't really stop after that initial evaluation when we really flood them with a lot of information. It has to be an ongoing process as they uh, continue on the wait list and eventually to transplant. We really need to coordinate care amongst the various care providers. Um, And we also have to really um, come to the conclusion that patients who are not suitable candidates for transplantation should be informed as soon as that conclusion is made, whether that's done by the transplant center, which we're happy to do, uh, or the uh, primary physicians uh, can be discussed. So our challenge in managing the wait list and the issues with the long wait list are uh, several fold, not the least of which is another result from that five-tier grading system that I didn't focus on earlier, and that is the transplant rate. And this is the Bay Area, the three different programs, our program on top, Stanford, and Cal Pacific. And you can see all of us have transplant rates. This is per 100 people per year of between 5 and 10, which if you look across the country and at national averages is far below what one might expect for transplant rates. And that's due, I think, in part to the fact that all three programs really are very aggressive in numbers of patients they put on the list, so we have large lists. 
Our organ uh, donation rate in terms of deceased donation is not, um, is not much higher than any other place in the country. So, of course, we have a huge mismatch between number of patients waiting and number of patients we can actually transplant. So that's the number that we'd like to see a whole lot better. And looking at it another way, if you look at national data, about 22% of patients uh, at other centers will be transplanted within three years. In the Bay Area, it's in, at our center, it's around 6%. So as you well know, many of our patients are waiting between, it's now 7 to 10 years. And uh, that results in that statistic I showed earlier about only one out of five patients making it to the end for a transplant. And if you look at our kidney waitlist activity in terms of the total waitlist, the number of patients who have made it through a VAL and are now sitting on our waitlist, about two-thirds of them are active, the other third are inactive. And the inactive reasons vary. Um, some of them I think we could potentially be intervening upon to turn inactive patients into active patients. Those would include patients who need weight loss. About 22% of our inactive patients are in that category. Uh, patients who uh, have incomplete workups, tests that just can't get done to be able to move forward. I think we could do better there as providers. And then uh, patients in the other categories, some of which include smoking, so that could certainly be improved upon to have more patients ready. And the result of not having patients ready, again, are patients falling off the list. And we'd like to see waitlist removals happen mostly because of transplants. And in our program, as I showed earlier, it's about 300 to 350 transplants a year. But you can see waitlist removals because patients become too sick or die actually surpasses the number of patients we take off the waitlist with transplants. So these, these are clearly the patients we'd like to do much better with, trying to get them a transplant before they uh, become uh, non-candidates. So in tackling this challenge, I think there's several uh, obvious areas we need to focus on. One is handling all of this information that has to be exchanged between the various providers outside of our program and within our program making sure the patient is up to date on the various options for transplantation, and then really um, opening up those options if the patient agrees. So I like to think of the patient who's going through our center as going through different phases of care. Of course, beginning with the evaluation phase, and then they're generally put onto the wait list, and then a workup when they near the top of the list, and then eventually the transplant. And it really turns into sort of a funnel. As I told you earlier, at the front end of the funnel, we're pouring in about 2,000 patients a year uh, for referrals. Some of those will be screened out uh, immediately because of contraindications in our program, such as ongoing smoking, uh, certain weight criteria. Um, and it'll come down to about uh, 1,500 or so that are evaluated. About 1,000 of those pass that evaluation phase and are listed and then, as I mentioned, the listed patients will just wait on the wait list until they get near the top and then go on to have another phase of workups. At that point, we may find new contraindications and the patients drop off the wait list. And then a final evaluation done at our program with a face-to-face -face visit may find other issues of frailty, for instance, that would uh, stop the patient from moving forward. And then the ones that make it that far are ready for an organ offer 
and if it comes in time, they get to have their transplant. And at this end is where I used to work, and I can tell you we have nine surgeons that are very much ready with scalpels and and honed skills to do these transplants. So the challenge is getting the patients through this funnel down to the end where we can perform the procedure. So in thinking about how to make things better, I sort of made a list of what the dream transplant program would look like in terms of its referrals and how we handle information. So in the dream world, the patient would be referred, where they would have a complete history and physical, of course, in digital form, so we could put it right into our electronic record. All their uh, various tests would be digitalized, so we could get it right into our record in the exact spot it needs to be. And then all their maintenance health care will have been done, their colonoscopies, their mammograms, et cetera. And then the initial screening, when we first get a referral, uh, would have very objective criteria that are a little bit more um, uh, granular than what we currently have so that we could uh, find patients who you know, real, really don't have a realistic chance of moving forward and, and um, have them screened off at that point. And maybe digital analytics and machine-based learning could help with some of that uh, decision-making. And then once they are in for an evaluation and have been approved for transplant, have some uh, level of prioritization so that we could improve uh, patients uh, getting transplants before they need to start dialysis, preemptive transplants, and then also uh, accelerate patients who have living donors through the process. A suitable candidate would then be evaluated, placed on the wait list. While they're on the wait list, we would get beautiful updates every year saying what their address is, if their uh, uh, health uh, maintenance is up to date, if they've developed a new cancer, and it would all be into our nice record that we could easily access. And then the final workup would be done at the transplant center in a very expedited fashion. We'd order the tests at our own center, maybe admit the patient to our own center, get the workup done in a very quick and efficient process, or if it was done on the outside, we'd have an outside consultant that understands all the issues of transplant and would give us a nice uh, review of the patient's risk for transplant, say if it was for a cancer. And then they'd have their final transplant visit, be ready to go, and we'd do the transplant. Well, here's what the real world's like, as I'm sure you all know. The, the patient is referred with minimal records. The records always, not always, but many times come in paper form. They're from multiple sources, so we have to have somebody collate all that and put it into an electronic record, really repeating work from some other centers that may actually have the patient's chart already in an electronic record. The initial screening is done with very sort of crude criteria just based on weight, smoking, and GFR. Um, the prioritization uh, for moving somebody through the system sometimes occurs just too late in the process. We should really be pushing for living donors very early on to make sure those workups are expedited. The suitable candidates are evaluated, placed on the wait list. Nothing happens for years, including minimal contact with the patients despite our best efforts. Um, so we have incomplete annual updates. So when they come time to have their final workup, they really look like a whole new patient. Um, testing in the final workup is often slow to completion. The outside expert uh, options, uh, opinions that we may get are inadequate. Things have to be repeated to meet our protocols. So it's a, it's a time-consuming, labor-consuming, resource-consuming process. And then it moves too slowly for many patients who, who then become too ill 
and die and are removed from the wait list. So I think one thing that I'd like to see and try and do is to bring this real world a little closer to our perfect world. So what about the challenge of patient workup? Um, again, uh, we have a lot of people in our office, a dedicated AA team that uh, works on gathering records, but as I mentioned, they come from different sources and different f- uh, formats, faxes that are smudged, you can't read, you know, incomplete records. And then once the data gets here, we have to make sure we're interpreting the data in the right sense. A lot of times we ask for one test and get results that are irrelevant for transplant, and suddenly that leads to more testing. So that needs to be uh, carefully watched for. And then the final testing, uh, to get them ready at the final stages for transplant, we need to have an expedited way to make sure those tests get ordered properly and get done as per our protocol. And then, of course, there's a recollection of record on that final testing. So a real challenge, and where I think we hope you can help us, is very simple requests at first. Um, I think notification of our center of a patient death would be helpful. Um, I can tell you I, I was on call last week, and we spent an hour trying to find a patient and find, found out that they had passed away. So, you know, if your dialysis center or your office could let us know if somebody's passed away, and not only if we're trying to call them in for transplant, would that be helpful, but if we're initiating their workup to get them off the list, it would be nice to know that before we spend a lot of time uh, digging up uh, outside records. And certainly a significant change in patient status is also extremely helpful. It's very hard to look at an electronic record, since we have access to some of that, and get a a, a true sense of how frail a patient may be, for instance, for transplant. And so if, if you find, as you do your visits with patients, someone's deteriorating to a point where transplant may may not be an option, let us know. And, you know, we're happy to contact the patient and then let them know that they don't meet our criteria for transplant. But it's helpful to have that uh, interaction with us. Uh, if you can get the healthcare maintenance things done um, as patients need them done, uh, we have the same criteria that every person in the general population has in terms of being up to date on healthcare maintenance. Uh, encourage smoking cessation. Again, that's a big reason that patients are sitting inactive on the list. You can get them into a smoking cessation program. That would be fantastic. And similarly with the weight loss issues. Um, We have BMI criteria that are uh, uh, distributed uh, occasionally. They change. We're always increasing them a little bit. But there certainly are patients who we ask to lose weight and sit on the list year after year with not weight loss but more weight gain. And they probably need help in terms of bariatric referral. And if you could do that to get the patient move forward, that would be extremely helpful. And then if you have questions about certain workup that we're asking for, certain types of cardiac evaluation, please let us know. Um, And we can make sure that the right test gets done the the first time through and, again, help save um, wasted tests. Well, what about when the patient gets through all this workup and is active and ready to go for transplant. We still have the really alarming problem of way too many patients for the numbers of organs that we have available. So it's very important to think about other options for patients rather than waiting for the standard criteria donor kidney. 
And some of these are listed here. I'm going to run through them uh, quickly. So living donor transplant, as I mentioned earlier, is still by far and away the best option for all patients. Um, for the obvious reasons that we tell patients about, it's a shorter waiting time, better quality kidney, longer kidney survival. Um, the challenge is really educating the recipient in, in these concepts and making sure they really understand that the, the, the penalty of waiting for a, a deceased donor transplant and not exploring living donation could be death on the wait list. Um, we had educate them very early on that it's safe for donors uh, to proceed if they pass all the workup. Uh, one thing that we've been developing is how to uh, uh, educate patients on how to ask for potential donors. And along those lines, we've uh, started what's known as the Donor Champion Program. And the idea here is that, of course, um, patients have uh, sometimes an obvious donor, but many other times somebody who's interested in helping them get transplanted, the so-called donor champion. And the idea is, is to remove the, the burden and the stress of having the patient ask other friends or relatives for uh, potential donors, but rather have this donor champion do that. Now, for a donor champion to effectively do that, they need to understand what's involved in kidney donation and kidney transplant. So the idea of this program is to educate that donor champion and empower them to be able to go out into the recipient's social network and potentially uh, query friends and relatives to see if they would interest, be interested in being a donor. So I've participated in one of these programs. It was actually very uh, insightful to see Patients come with their donor champion, other family members, and just watch their eyes light up when they learn about different facets of living kidney donation. And I think this ongoing education piece is going to be a very important contribution to care of our patients. Um, living donor transplantation, again, is uh, able to be offered to many more patients than we could offer in the past because of the paired kidney exchange programs, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, we do also have the option for uh, trying to better match patients for age or size uh, with the compatible donor program. Um, so we're, we're going to look into expanding that area. And really, the, the efficacy of the paired kidney exchange in terms of finding good donor matches for patients has almost replaced desensitization in our program. Well, you've heard also at this venue many discussions and debates about the high-risk donor. Again, I think it's very important to understand the role of using high-risk donors for your patients. And the high-risk donor is defined as a donor who meets certain risk factors, identified by the Public Health Service guidelines for increased risk of hepatitis C, B, and HIV transmission. There's a list of about 14 different categories of, of high risk. And it's important, and I, I really try and emphasize this with patients, is not every high-risk donor uh, is the same. So, for instance, if, you, if a donor was treated for a sexually transmitted disease in the previous year, may have been one episode of chlamydia, um, they are considered a high-risk donor, the same as a donor who may have passed away the night after using IV drugs and has just gotten out of jail. They're both labeled as high-risk donors, but obviously the risk is probably a little different between those two categories in terms of disease transmission. 
So patients need to understand that not every high-risk donor is the same, and by opening up their option to a high-risk donor, they will have an uh, ability to maybe get that kidney from the less high-risk donor, uh, but have also the option of turning down the kidney from the really high-risk donor because we do uh, reveal to them select information as to why the donor is high-risk. So they participate in that decision-making. So, you know, from our standpoint, really every recipient should be signing up for high-risk donors. And we tell the patients the risk, overall risk of disease transmission is about 1 in 2,000 for HIV and about 3 in 1,000 for hepatitis C. And again, hepatitis C is becoming almost like the common cold nowadays with all the, the new drugs. It's something that's very treatable, and really the, the risk of transmission and later developing liver failure will be just about zero with the newer drugs. And of course, if somebody does receive a high-risk donor, we do follow them closely for any evidence of disease transmission so that that particular disease can be treated. Well, one other area that we've talked about many times are the high KDPI kidneys. And, of course, KDPI is Kidney Donor Profile Index. It's a measure of kidney quality based on donor factors. Uh, it goes from a scale of 1 to 100, with the lower number being better. Uh, if a patient elects to receive a kidney from a KDPI donor greater than 85%, so-called ECD kidneys in the past or marginal donors, it does require recipient pre-consent. Um, interestingly, high KDPI kidneys in the new allocation system are actually shared regionally. So all throughout the five-state area that, that we're located in, uh, these kidneys are offered first to the patient who's highest on the list amongst all the transplant centers in that five-state region. Now, when this first came out, I thought we were going to be flooded with organ offers from high KDPI donors, but... It turns out because we have a fairly limited uh, cohort of patients that we'll offer these kidneys to, and specifically they're, they're recipients over age 60 or recipients over age 40 who have a history of diabetes, many other transplant centers have a much more liberal use of, of these particular kidneys. So a lot of those kidneys are going to patients at other centers when we thought they would be coming to us. So the volume of high KDPI kidney transplants that we're doing is not as, as good as I'd like to see, but it's something we think is still a great option for select patients. And again, just to remind you about the KDPI score, uh, it looks at various donor factors, age, height, weight, ethnicity, cause of death, whether they had high blood pressure or diabetes, and what their uh, serum creatinine was before recovery. So it's a very nice way to you know, grade the quality of kidneys and has been very helpful in making decisions about which kidney is right for which patient. And high KDPI kidneys, you know, have slowly increased in use over the last uh, 20 years. And uh, the unfortunate side of this is many of these kidneys are discarded when they could potentially be a source of uh, good transplants for patients. And the reason KDPI is so helpful is because it's really linked to outcome at one in two years specifically. And if you look here, these, is the, these are the various KDPI uh, gradations, again, from one up to 100, 100 being the less 
good quality kidneys. And this is one-year and two-year uh, graft survival rates. And you can see if you pick a middle-range kidney, don't pick the 1%. These hardly ever come along. But pick a middle-range kidney, you know, one-year survival, 91%. Uh, this would go to a standard criteria uh, patient. And then if you look, it drops to about 85% for a 95% KDPI kidney. So a drop-off in survival of about 6%. But for the patient that receives this, remember the competing risk is death on the wait list. So I think it makes a lot of sense for the right patients. Well, we would like to push the boundaries in terms of using more high KDPI kidneys, and some of the strategies to do that would include pumping more kidneys. So when they're recovered, they're put onto a, an organ perfusion device so we can uh, gather more data about the resistance in the arteries, maybe have time to review a biopsy. So it's a nice way to, uh, again, have a better way to, to decide if these kidneys are going to benefit a patient. Of course, kidney biopsies are very controversial. Most of these high KDPI kidneys are going to have a, uh, an abnormal biopsy by definition. And the question is, is what threshold of abnormality do you use before discarding the kidney? And there's a lot of debate there. But I think Probably the use of more biopsies might be a way to, to encourage use of more of these kidneys. And then trying to tailor our immunosuppression to patients that receive high KDPI kidneys, namely by minimizing calcineurins, is something that we think would be effective. We uh, also uh, are very interested in a project uh, being put forth uh, to look at the effect of removing uh, results of high KDPI transplants from the analysis of transplant center outcomes. Because a lot of centers get concerned about using these kidneys. They don't last as long. It affects their, their outcome statistics, which I'm showing you all sorts of numbers that are out there for the public to see. So a study is going to look at if you remove some of those uh, abnormal uh, results from your um, overall analysis if transplant centers would be more inclined to use these kidneys. Again, the, the idea that too many of these kidneys are discarded, which could help patients. Well, going from maybe the kidneys that aren't of the best quality to kidneys that I think are uh, really um, probably some of the best kidneys we can potentially transplant are the pediatric on-block kidneys. And this is a situation where a donor that's usually under 15 kilograms, both kidneys would be used in a single patient. It's a procedure we've been doing since the mid-90s with actually outstanding success. We do have uh, certain patients who are eligible for this. Uh, they have to be low immunologic risk because you can't really biopsy them early on. They have to be straightforward cases because we don't have a lot of options about where we put the kidneys, and we want the patients to be a little bit on the smaller side. They are pre-consented, and the concept is that by accepting these kidneys, you will shorten your wait time. But you'll also get outstanding results, and this is an analysis done with UNOS data, and you can see the top bar here. These are on-block kidneys going out to 10 years and compared to the standard uh, adult kidneys, they have equal results, if not slightly better. And there are analyses looking at comparing on-block uh, kidneys with living donor kidneys, and the results seem uh, almost equal. And if you look at GFR out eight years, here's one example of a study looking at live donor versus on-block. 
the unblocked kidneys have a GFR of 61 versus 38 for the living donor kidneys. So really almost superior than living donor kidneys. So I think a great benefit for the right patients. We also have, in limited cases, used two adult kidneys into one patient. And the brainstorm aha moment here was uh, many years ago when uh, Dr. Lloyd Ratner at Hopkins was offered a kidney in the middle of the night. The patient's GFR was measured to be 50. And he thought, well, if I give one kidney, that's a GFR of 25. That's not better, much better than they had when they were listed. And he said, well, why don't we use both kidneys? And so the concept of dual adult kidneys was born. There are special criteria that UNOS has which would uh, uh, designate a potential deceased donor as being an automatic dual uh, adult kidney donor. And again, we would use these and select patients. And if you looked at graft survival, uh, this is a European study that looked at dual kidneys and single kidneys in terms of graft survival. And you can see the results are superior if the kidneys are used as duals. And as you might expect, the GFR is also superior if the kidneys are used as duals. So in terms of using these kidneys, the problem is this is a much bigger operation to put two kidneys into one patient. Currently, we're targeting patients who are the same patients that would receive a high KDPI kidney. So patients over age 60, patients with diabetes over age 40. So those are the patients who you would like to do a nice, straightforward, simple operation on. And here we're proposing putting two kidneys in, which is a little bit more complex. And certainly the centers that have been doing a lot of adult dual kidneys uh, report higher complication rates. So that is something that has to go into the formula. And whether this option should be opened up for patients in other groups who aren't quite as ill at the time of transplant could certainly be debated. And lastly, I want to talk about the hepatitis C positive donor. Um, again, we have a program for this. We've had it for many years. Patients do have to sign a special consent uh, pre-transplant. They obviously have to be well compensated and not need a liver transplant at the same time. And ideally, if a patient is well compensated, they're a candidate for a hepatitis C positive kidney and they consent for it, so they want to get a hep C positive kidney, then they shouldn't be treated for their hepatitis C until after transplant because that will eliminate them as a candidate for a hep C positive kidney. And it will significantly shorten wait time. And national data suggests you'll go from a wait time of well over 400 days down to less than 50. And I suspect that's uh, not quite as dramatic, or probably even more dramatic in our area, since our average wait time is much longer than 450 days. And if you look at some older data, clearly the risk of accepting these kidneys compared to uh, staying on the wait list uh, shows uh, analysis, an analysis that it favors accepting the kidney with an adjusted hazard ratio of 0.76. Even more interesting, with the introduction of hepatitis C treatment and now patients that are clearing their virus very easily, is the concept of using hepatitis C positive kidneys in hepatitis C negative recipients. And the idea being you trans do the transplant with that particular donor, Again, they're good quality kidneys. They've shortened their wait time. And then you immediately treat the recipient with some of the newer hepatitis C drugs. And in this report, which was in the New England Journal recently, this was 10 patients at the University of Pennsylvania where they are doing this trial. You can see their viral load right after transplant, not unexpectedly, was measurable. There was a true 
disease transmission, but very quickly fell to undetectable with therapy. And these patients had an average creatinine of about 1.1 after transplant, so very good quality kidneys that they received. So in terms of the organ options, how you can help us is, again, the issue and idea of ongoing patient education, need to encourage patients to consider the living donor option, discuss these various surgical or special programs with appropriate patients. And again, if you need more guidelines and which programs exist, we're happy to, to talk to you about that. And, you know, I hear this all the time. Patients really rely on your opinion. I'll, I'll ask a patient, why didn't you sign up for a high risk? And they say, well, my, my doctor didn't think that was a, a good idea for me. So I'm trying to tell you I think it is a good idea, and, and we're hoping you can tell your patients and reinforce some of these uh, ways to access other kidneys when you see them in follow-ups. So in conclusion, I think our patients will benefit most from a coordinated effort to get them through uh, both the waitlist period and the transplant process. Uh, the waitlist is a very dynamic uh, list. Efforts need to focus on candidates that really have a realistic chance at a good transplant outcome. And you know, we really consider you part of our transplant team. So thank you. Now, do I have time for questions or? Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, uh, from the practical side, so it sounds to be a lot of anxiety on the patient side when you offer a high-risk donor and you mm. tell them that it's usually very good kidney and it's screened very well, and they ask in, usually me as a doctor who telling them this. Can you guarantee that it's no transmission of disease? Hmm. Or uh, can I be revealed the details of the donor before right. transplant? So it's any mechanism to tell patient, let's say this is healthy marijuana smoker, or this is somebody who was involved in you know, unprotected sex? Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so again, we are required to discuss with the patient at the time of the organ offer the reason that that particular donor is designated as high risk. So they'll, they'll get that in like a categorical information. They won't get the, you know, because a lot of times we don't have all the details. Um, so, so we'll relay that to them. And as I mentioned earlier, I tell patients, you know, open up your option. You'll, you'll talk to the surgeon or one of the nurse coordinators the night or day you get your kidney offer, and you'll get that information about why they're high risk. And if it doesn't sound right to you, pass on it. There's no penalty for that. The penalty of not accepting, the, at least being enrolled in the high-risk program, is waiting longer and potential death on the wait list. So I think that's the message um, you know, we have to try and relay to our patients. And it is, it is scary for them to, to think about, well, I'm going to have my kidney transplant, now I have hepatitis C. So you know, it's, it's the idea of the other alternative that I think patients a lot of times don't grasp. Yeah. Transplant hepatitis C positive kidney into a hepatitis C negative recipient. Uh, the, the criteria for is if they have an ongoing viral load. So all the patients that were done in that study that Hep C positive donors to Hep C negative recipients cleared their virus within 30 days, and that was considered. I mean, there was a disease transmission, no question. They had measurable virus, but it was quickly cleared from their system 
So there's no way they're going to develop long-term complications from hepatitis C. Oh, you're talking about in, in the risks that we tell the patients. So, yeah, that's essentially meaning that with a transplant from a high-risk donor, if you look at national statistics, your chance of actually getting hepatitis C where you have circulating virus and the need for treatment is three in, in, uh, in a thousand. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, in the past we've, we've um, had a protocol where um, recipients could only be genotype 1 because the most common genotype is 1. We don't have time to test the donor as to what genotype they are. Genotype 1 is the worst, theoretically, in the old. Everything's changed in hepatitis C, first of all. This is the old world. And so um, we didn't want to have a genotype 2, for instance, which is easier treated with the old drugs, a uh, patient get a, a genotype 1 organ and suddenly convert to a, di- a more difficult-to-treat genotype. Now with the newer drugs, that's all uh, irrelevant. So um, we can't genotype the donor. We assume they're one, but they could be something else. But whatever gets passed on to the recipient, at least our hepatologists tell us, um, they're very confident they'll be able to clear the virus with either the drugs that are currently available or the whole host of drugs that are just around the corner. I just have a practical question back here in the very oh, yeah. back sherry pocket from out here in the Napa Valley, yeah. actually. Um, I uh, have some difficulty figuring out who to talk to. I'm thinking of responding to your request for mm-hmm. inter- information. Yeah. Um, I find that our dialysis social workers are referring patients. I'm referring patients out of our office. It seems to be sort of not terribly clear uh, when the letter of acceptance or rejection com- of, sec- of acceptance comes back, if there could be there placed a contact person for us to track in our office as to who we should talk to about this patient, it might make it more helpful or a- a- I'm make me more able to provide information about what the status of the patient okay. is. Uh, thank, uh, thank you for the feedback. I couldn't agree with you more. I think we... You know, again, as I'm sure I've indicated to you, we're a busy place, but we have a lot of people working here, and I think we can do better to open up the lines of communication. We've talked about, there's always a back line, for one, where a physician could get a hold of a physician if needed. But I'm not sure that we, that I, as the Mm -hmm. nurse practitioner working for Dr. Parker, know that number. Okay. So, um, and I was very impressed with the stability of your team. So Mm -hmm. even a fax number that goes with that patient we could go with that route. Thank All you. All right. We will definitely try and do better in that regard. Okay. Thank you. Oh, sorry. Can't see in the light here. I believe on one of your slides you said that there was a chronologic age of 60 that the recipient had to be before they would be considered for um, an expanded donor or a high-risk donor. Is that a hard stop, or Mm -hmm. would you consider lowering it a little bit more because then presumably Mm -hmm. you get more offers? Yeah, it it is right now. We've talked about lowering it. As as, as I indicated, many other centers uh, have more liberal criteria. It was really, you know, clearly these kidneys don't have the same half-life as a kidney from a standard criteria donor. So our focus was to direct those kidneys to patients who have a higher predicted mortality on dialysis, which would be 
you know, patients over 60 and patients with diabetes. So, but that's something we talk about a lot is uh, whether we should open that up. I think for right now, those are the criteria we're, we're sticking with. Okay, thanks for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.